0: Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. We will be going to verse 19 this morning. Verse 17 to verse 19. Yes, this is the word of the Lord. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let us pray. Gracious Father, Precious son and precious Holy Spirit, we come to you now and we ask for your grace and for your help and for your strength this morning. Help us, Lord, at the end of, of this uh, sermon, Lord, see that, that it is quite possibly the theme of Revelation, that we are to fear not because Christ is victorious. Lord, give us a grace to understand Grace to see, grace to hear, grace to believe, and grace to obey. I decrease, Lord, that you may increase, be glorified for Christ's sake and for the good of your people, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this Lord's Day. Sabbath as we continue our study through John's Apocalypse. And remember now uh, the context in which this letter is written. John is on the rocky island of Patmos. We last week we compared it to it's not a one to one but we compared it to uh, what we know as Alcatraz today. And John is separated from the church exiled to this island because of the word of God. And his faithful testimony of Jesus Christ. John is in the spirit as he describes himself. On the Lord's day. And he is given a a vision. A glorious vision. Of the son of man. In this vision that echoes Daniel's vision. In Daniel 7 and 10. John sees Christ. Among or in the midst of. The seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are meant to represent uh, seven churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor and also the church for all time. I did not mention this last week, but uh, this 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 lampstand was also present in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple. Uh, The lampstands are given light by Christ. Christ is the light of the world. The church has light itself as well, uh, but our light finds its source in Christ. Uh, the church is a city set on a hill, but our light does not come from within our own selves. Uh, we are given light because we are in the light, the Lord Jesus Christ. John Hears the, the sound of, of the Son of Man, the sound of Christ and His sound or the voice or the sound of His voice is like a great trumpet. The voice commissions Him to deliver this message to the churches. John turns to see the voice that is calling out to Him and He beholds a glorious vision, a symbolic vision though, of the Son of Man. Re- remember last week, that he sees something like the Son of Man. Therefore, what he sees is to be interpreted symbolically, not literally. He is not seeing Christ, who is literally uh, one who has white wool like hair. He's not seeing one who is literally has eyes of fire. But these are all symbolic uh, features. He sees Christ with a long robe, he is he is king. He sees Christ with a golden sash. He is priest. Uh, He sees that he is the ancient of days, one with the Father. He sees that his eyes are are burning. He sees all and rightfully judges all. He sees that he has uh, bronze feet that are burning. They, They are glowing as when they are prepared in the furnace. And that means that he has walked perfectly obedient. And he calls those who are in his presence to also walk In holiness and in righteousness. His word is supreme. He rules over heaven and earth. And he is also our prophet. His word is sharp. It divides thoughts and intentions. He alone is glorious. And he alone has won the victory. This is what John sees symbolically. And John's response. To what he sees. Is what we would like to. I would like to consider with you this morning. Uh, The response of John, it is consistently the appropriate biblical response of anyone who is blessed to be in the presence of God. It is consistently the appropriate biblical response of anyone who finds themselves in the presence of God. And what what was that response? Verse seventeen: When I saw him, I fell at his feet. Listen, like a dead man. I two things fall at his feet, and secondly, as though I were dead. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. Brothers and sisters, this morning with God's help, we shall consider three points concerning the command of Christ. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Number one, then, John fell as though dead. Number one, John fell as though dead. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Uh, Saints, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, this is another term you'll need to get used to. Royal ones, kings. There will come a day when you and I and every single person in all of God's creation will be brought into the presence of God. What will our response be on that day? I wonder if you've thought about that. I wonder if you've thought about what the moment will be like for you. When you stand in the presence of God. There's a a song, right? There's a song that sings, I can only imagine. And to the writer of that song. Uh, let me get to that in a moment. But in that song, the, the, the writer is saying, will I dance? Uh, will I, I, I don't know the lyrics, will I scream? Will I shout? Uh, some of you know it. Some of you already sing it in, in your head. What well, you, you need not imagine what your response will be. Because the scriptures tell you what your response will be. Uh, there's a, an unbeliever uh, who I heard recently say, that one day I will die and I believe, he says, this unbeliever, I will see God. He doesn't believe in Christ in the way that you and I believe in him, but he believes in God, which is not saying much because even demons believe in God. So this unbeliever says, I believe I'll see God and here's what he thinks will, will, will happen. I'll be there and, and God will speak, he says. He will say to me, he already knows what God will say, that I did some good things and that I also did a lot of bad things. And then it'll be my turn to speak. And when I say to God, here's what I'm going to say. See, God, here's what I'm going to say. You also did some good things, God. And you also did some bad things. He said, me and God are going to have a good conversation on that day. I'm going to tell him that he's going to have to answer for all of the evil that went on in this world. He said, and he's going to have to answer those questions. He's going to have to answer me. Many of us have this idea from the writer, I can only imagine who's supposed to be a believer, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt, to the unbeliever who says, and me and God are going to have a good discussion on that day. John shows us that we don't have to imagine and John shows us that we don't have to come up with our own ideas of what our response will be like on the day that we are brought face to face into the presence of God Almighty. And here it is, we will be literally, utterly, completely torn apart. John Durham paraphrases John's response as this. He says, I was benumbed. You ever been benumbed? It's when your entire body goes numb. I was benumbed. Maybe you've received information before that has caused you to be numb in your body. You, you can't believe what you've heard. He says, John was benumbed, stunned with the sight of, ex, of the excellent majesty and glory that I saw in him. I was put out of capacity to the acts of body or mind as if I had been dead. I could no more exercise or act the acts of a living man than a dead man can. I could do as much as a dead man can do. When I was in the presence of God. When I saw what I saw, I could do as much as a dead man could do. What could dead men do? Stink. And nothing more. When John experiences what John experiences is similar to the experience of Daniel. Uh, Daniel has this, this similar vision of the Son of Man found in Daniel chapter 8 and Jan, especially in Daniel chapter 10. And it follows this this fourfold pattern. And here it is. The prophet receives a vision, falls on his face in fear, is strengthened by a heavenly being, the Son of Man, and then receives further revelation from that being. It's the fourfold pattern, uh, which, because John is receiving this, scholars place John into the category, into the company of Old Testament prophets. John depicts how creatures made in the image of God, when we are confronted with this, the holiness of God, when we are confronted with the holiness of God in, in contrast to our own wretchedness, this is what our response will be. It is a response of sheer terror, and unworthiness. Will I dance? Will I sing? No, you will be utterly afraid. Will I be able to speak at all? No, you will be a dead man. Walk through the scriptures. Observe the response of those who encountered the holiness of God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10, after the fall. What does Adam do? Does Adam go, here I am God. God. We're friends anyways. I, I know I have nothing to worry about. Adam hides in fear when he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, coming to visit him. He hides in fear. In Genesis fifteen twelve, Abraham, then his name was Abram, was brought into the presence of God. And the description is this terror and great darkness fell upon him. Uh, not because God is darkness. N- not because uh, God is, is is some kind of monster. But because he was confronted with the holiness of God. The, the darkness is his own darkness. The terror is the terror because of his own sin. In Exodus 3 and verse 6, Moses was in the presence of the great I Am, Yahweh. And he hides his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Why? Because of the holiness of God. Because of the the perfection of God. Hebrews 12 testifies that Moses was full, uh, not slightly, full of fear and full of trembling. Because of the holiness of God. In Exodus chapter 14, 19 and 20, fear and trembling comes over the people of Israel when they encounter the presence of God. Hebrews testifies that they don't want Him to speak anymore. That His voice was so terrifying to them that they they would rather Him not utter another word. Isaiah the prophet could testify of John's experience, of John's falling apart in the presence of God. You know this verse well. Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, the prophet's eyes were open, and he was finally able to see the Lord. Uh, when the ruler of the kings of the earth died, he, he was able to see the ruler of all of the kings of the earth. The Lord God Almighty. And what does he say? Woe is me. Woe is me. I am lost. He says, I, I am undone. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the presence of the holiness of God, Isaiah comes to grips with just how utterly wicked he is. He began to call down curses upon himself. Woe is me. I am cursed. He describes himself as being undone, incomplete, lost. And this self-examination comes as he is confronted with the whole, the complete, the perfect, almighty one. In seeing the Holy One, he sees himself as being the incomplete, unholy one. You remember Peter's response when he is confronted with the the holiness of the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. After launching out into the deep, after being told on which side he should cast his nets, after uh, taking a haul so big that the, the ships themselves began to sink... But after first hearing the gospel preached, Peter sees Christ for who he is. He is given eyes to see. And his response is falling on his knees at the feet of Jesus and saying in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, Go away from me, Lord. Why? For I am a sinful man. For I am unworthy. He could say the same thing that Isaiah said. Woe is me. I am undone. My eyes have seen the Lord. These are just a few. I think if we were honest, you and I could add our testimony to the testimonies of those that we have just heard. And when we were brought to Christ, when we were given true faith, our initial response was, we are unworthy. That we are absolutely wretched. That we are undeserving of the mercy that Christ offers to us. Think of all the things that we have done. All the sins that we committed. All the thoughts and words that have come out of our mouths and that run through our minds. What's the first thought that we have? I am unworthy to be forgiven of all of these things. And these things that still continue. We are brought into the realization that we are sinners against God. That we have offended the Holy One. That we have advi- that we have violated His Holy Law. That, that we are only deserving of judgment for our sin. That we are undeserving of any mercy. Isn't that our response? Well, wasn't that our response? Were you not utterly devastated on the day that you were brought to Christ? Were you not desperately brought... To your knees. Were you not humble before the Lord of glory on that blessed day. When grace was offered to you. The testimony of the believer is like that of Job. Who in Job 42, five said I heard. I heard of you. By the hearing of the ear, But now my eyes see you. Therefore because of what I see. He says I despise myself. And I repent, he says, in dust and in ashes. Unless uh, we think that it is only unbelievers that experience such fear. Uh, that's the way I felt when I was an unbeliever. I, I, I don't feel that way anymore, should I? I shouldn't be a fear and have this kind of a falling dead before God kind of fear anymore, should I? Uh, need I remind you? Of who is communicating this vision? Is John an unbeliever? He has brought this vision because of his faithfulness to God's word, because of his faithful testimony of Christ. John is anything but an unbeliever. Need be, we be reminded of who it is who is seeing the Lord of glory. It's John. Remember, this is the disciple whom Jesus loved who is falling dead before the the presence of Christ. Uh, This is the disciple who sat closest to Christ, who, who leaned his head upon the breast of the Savior, the King of glory. Was he not on the Mount of Transfiguration? Was he not the last disciple to see Christ on the cross and the first because he outran Peter to see the empty tomb? And yet, in spite of all of these benefits, in spite of his intimate fellowship and relationship with Christ, he, John, our brother, as he calls himself, he falls like a dead man when he is confronted with the divine splendor of the glory of Christ in his eye. Will I dance? Will I sing? A no believer, you will fall like a dead man before him. That he should fall like a dead man. That he should be unable to see or stand. It amplifies the imaginable glory of Christ. And it highlights once again what our response will be on that day. Spurgeon says, in the only way that Spurgeon can, the most spiritual and sanctified minds, the best of us, when they fully perceive the majesty and holiness of God, are so greatly conscious of their great disproportion between themselves and the Lord, that they are humbled and filled with holy awe, even with dread and alarm. The best of us, even the best. And are we not reading about the best of us, whose response was like even the worst of us? James Durham says, from the exceeding great distance that is between the great infinite majesty of God and finite creatures, the brightness of glory, excellency and majesty of God, the creator, burden and, oh, burden and overburdens, the weakness and infirmity of even the best creatures brings us to our knees. Holiness of God, I cannot even uh, uh, lay my eyes upon it. Burdens and overburdens fall upon me. When we consider how offensive just one sin is in the holy presence of God, it's no wonder that Adam, Abram, Moses, Israel, Job, Isaiah, Peter, you and I are terrified in the holy presence of God. Even the best of us. Even the best of us. Will be brought to our knees. In certain churches all across the world. So-called churches. So-called believers. Are taught by so-called pastors. To have an easy. Blase. Even flippantly familiar attitude toward Christ. That they would even commit. I believe uh, heresy and also blasphemy. That they would call him their homeboy. Or homie. I have a cousin who I asked him in trying to share the gospel with him about Christ. He says, Jesus, that's my dude. You don't have to tell me about him. They take the truth that Christ is our friend. This is true. He is a friend of sinners. But take it to an unhealthy extreme. A place of irreverence. And informality. Fear and reverence for Christ. Fear and reverence for His word. Fear and reverence for His supper. For not only the day. But the Lord of the day. Is more and more being dismissed. Dismissed. Christ is not that demanding, they say. His word, priest, is taken for granted. The supper does not even evoke in us examination. It's rather a time for us to take a quick catnap. That we would take at least the heart attitude of Martin Luther. At least the heart posture of Luther when we are holding and beholding the elements that have been set apart for holy use, that we might pause and realize that we are but dust and we are but ashes, that that we are far too often comfortable with sin, that we know that we still have and know that we will not repent of. That holy fear, that a holy fear would, would grip our hearts as we take the sign, the bread and the cup of the new covenant. As we proclaim that our sin has been crucified with Christ. And that we too have been crucified with Christ. Luther, you might know this. Luther was called insane. Insane for his terror over sin. Insane for his apprehension to come into the presence of God. That that he was called and deemed clinically insane. R.C. Sproul said concerning this accusation of insanity. Our prayer is that God would send to this earth an epidemic of such insanity. That all across the world that we would have such a fear and terror before the presence of God. There was a question asked of R.C. Sproul during a Q&A years ago. And it was this. Was God too harsh on his judgment of Adam. When Sproul received the question. You, you can look it up. He took kind of a second look. A second glance and said. Was God too harsh? And his response was. What's the matter with you people? This is the holiness of God. That he is offend offended. What's the matter with you people? He says. While it is true that Christ is a merciful friend to sinners, we must not minimize or neglect the fact that we come into the, the holy presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And he must be reverenced as so. Richard Phillips, therefore, as prophets Isaiah and Daniel showed together with the apostles Peter and John True spirituality does not consist in joviality, joking around, lighthearted fun, much less in worldly enthusiasm, but it is built on an an awe. Spirituality is is what? It It is an awe of a holy God. What is spirituality? Loathing for sin. What is spirituality? Longing for the saving grace from the merciful hand of our Savior. That is true spirituality. Saints, the first matter of true godliness is the necessity of death with our sin. And it has been brought to bear when we are confronted with the holiness of God. John falls as though he were dead. And it reminds us that the wages of sin is death. What was the response of Christ now? When He moves... When he moves toward this sinner, who is in absolute terror. Here's the response of Christ. Let's read it together. Verse 17 through 18. 17b, that's the latter part of uh, 17. And he placed his hand, his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Would you notice again, saints, the appropriate response when confronted with the presence and holiness of Christ. John falls appropriately at the feet of Jesus as though he were dead. It's where Peter fell. It's where all the disciples fall. They fall at the feet of Christ. Daniel was brought to his To the ground when he received this vision. And what was the response of Christ? He places his, his right hand on the one who fears him and says to them, lovingly and graciously and mercifully, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, let's bring some clarity. One might automatically assume that Christ is telling John that that he should not be afraid of Christ. Sadly, many walk away with this conclusion. That our, listen to this, our heart posture toward Christ should be one of relaxed familiarity. That is not, first and foremost, what, what Christ is communicating to John which means he's not communicating it to the church. Then and now. On the surface, do not fear seems to refer to only Christ's exhortation to not be afraid of his exalted presence. Just as John has been given images that would strike fear in any creature. But but we must continue to read the text. Christ gives assurance as to why John should not fear. Let's continue to read verse 18 and beyond. Uh, the living one, I, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are the things which are to take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And he goes on now to speak to the churches. Uh, he, he is building a foundation as to Why? John, the churches then, and the churches today, and the churches of the future should not fear. It's because Christ is sovereign and has won the victory. Why should you not fear? Because Christ is in control. Because Christ is victorious. It's the pattern throughout all of Revelation. If you go to Revelation 2, 8 through 11... There's another exhortion. Do not fear. And it's being applied to suffering. Why? Because Christ's victory over death. And consequent supremacy over history. Calms our fears. It's the context of the text. From the beginning of this letter. We have heard. That our triune God rules. That he is sovereign. That he has power. That he has victory. We've seen the vision That John was given in the midst of his own tribulation. And because he is a part of the kingdom. He is reigning with Christ. Therefore he will persevere. And John is to communicate this to the churches. Don't fear because Christ is in control. Don't fear because Christ has brought us into his kingdom. And we are ruling with him. And perseverance is a part of our ruling. So don't fear one that proclaims the glory majesty and victory of Christ must endure tribulation and not fear what comes from this world John sees Christ and he appropriately falls dead he stands in the presence of the holiness of God filled with horror and confronted with his own depravity and falls dead Adam was visited by the Lord And what does the Lord say to him when Adam goes and hides? He says, where are you? It's it's a rhetorical question. Where are you? And Adam says, I heard you walking in in the garden. And so I hid from you. God does not say to Adam, why are you hiding? You don't have nothing to worry about. It's me. You shouldn't fear me. Rather... God calls him on his sin. The response was appropriate because of sin. And we, are we not? We are all descending from that first man. We we do not come into his presence where God says, don't worry about it. Fear is the last thing that you should have. No. No. It is an appropriate response. He offended and sinned against the righteous command of God. We are born of Adam, adopted by the Father, through the Son. And we act appropriately when we fall at His feet. But there's two things that are happening here. And it's it's in a sense paradoxical. John should fear and then John should not fear. And both of these fears are true at the same time. John has an appropriate fear and let's just stay on this for a second. There are appropriate fears for the believer and there are inappropriate fears. The two fears that John is is fearing are appropriate. He is fearing the presence of Christ. And while he's being told not to fear, he should also continue to fear. For he's in Christ. For the un, for the believer, there is a fear that we have for Christ, which we should keep, and an inappropriate fear of the things that we experience in this world that we should not fear. The Lord Jesus addresses these, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 6, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried or fearful about your life. What things do we most often fear? What we will eat, what we will drink. Essentially this, how am I going to survive? How am I going to survive? The Lord says, not about your body? As to what you will put on? Because is life not more than food? And the body not more than clothing? How will I survive? How will I be sheltered for? Will I be out on the street? The Lord rebukes that kind of fear. And if the Lord rebukes it and says, do not fear in that way, if we do fear in that way, it is a sin. When we fear or have anxiety over whether or not we will be provided for, it is a sin when we fear over whether or not we will have shelter, it is a sin. We are to have no anxiety over those things because God, Christ, has promised that we will be cared for. Our daily needs will be met. The Lord's cure is found in a call to observe the way God cares for His creation. and There is nothing in all of creation that is found in want. And aren't you more... Aren't you more valuable, Christ says, than they are? Aren't you more valuable than they? He, he redirects our inappropriate fears to an appropriate one. Your heavenly father knows all the things that you need. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. There's a redirection of fear. Fear. You're fearing here. It's inappropriate. Let me redirect your fear to where it should be. Seek first the kingdom of God. The Lord knows all of the things that you need. You will be provided for. Don't worry about your daily needs. Fear should not be directed toward the cares and concerns of provisions. Rather, the kingdom should be our main concern. For are you not citizens there? Are you not citizens there? I, Last week, I think it was last week, some of us may have been slightly uncomfortable with being told from the scriptures, not from me, but for being told from the scriptures that you are royalty. That, that you are kings, and essentially, let's add the queens there, kings and queens in the kingdom of God. That, that you are ruling with Christ. And it, I think the the reason for that is because of your heart posture. You say, I am unworthy of having this kind of label placed on me. You're right. You are unworthy. But it's not a call to, to cause you to have arrogance. It's a call to recognize that you reign with Christ, and there's two things happening, isn't there? There is a heart posture that says, I am undeserving of it. And you're right. Keep that heart posture. And at the same time, Christ is saying, but you are a king because I am allowing you to rule with me. There's two things happening. You are ruling with Christ. Yes. But it does not allow you to have the arrogance and pomp of earthly kings. Because you are not an earthly king. You are a citizen of heaven. You are ruling with Christ, which gives you the authority to turn away what? All of those who uh, deny your commands. No, you're not that kind of a king. To turn away from the sin that this world offers, op- the kingdom of this world offers you, the temptation that this world presents to you. Because you are ruling with Christ, Christ turns away from sin, and because you are ruling with Christ, you turn away from sin. You are a part of a different kingdom, and you show your kingship. When you show and live according to the kingdom that you are a part of. It's the same thing that's been taken uh, out of context. This, this idea that we are a friend of Jesus. Yes, you are a friend of Jesus. But don't take it too far. And that's why many of us don't like uh, that I am a friend of Jesus even phrase. It's a, it's a biblical one. He's a friend of sinners, he is. But don't let the way that it has been distorted... Cause you to see it that way, that wrong way. See it the Bible's way. He has invited you as his friend. He has brought you into fellowship with him. so That you can walk in holiness, not in irreverence. You are ruling with Christ. Not so that you can command people all over the place and say, do what I say. I'm a king. No, so that you can turn away from sin. That you can show that you are a part of a different kingdom. The kingdom of Christ. Yes, you rule. You rule with Christ. See it the right way and then live by it. Don't take it the distorted, uh, polluted way. Take it the right way, that it's meant to be taken. Uh, the world, especially the false church, will always take a truth. Give you the skin, but fill it with, with poison. Take it for what it's meant to be. Don't eat the poison of the false church or of the world. Matthew 10, another rebuke. The Lord encourages. So uh, for those who worry about provisions, who worry about security and shelter, there is a rebuke for that. In Matthew 10, there's another rebuke. The Lord encourages and also commands those who will witness on behalf of Christ when their lives are threatened for their witness. He encourages them with this. Matthew ten twenty-eight. Do not fear those who will kill the body. See the inappropriate fear there? Do not fear those who will kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Well, who's the one I wonder who is able to kill the soul that we should fear? He's making the contrast. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but rather fear the one who is unable to kill the, who is able to kill the soul. He goes on to say, it, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Not do not fear him don't fear them, fear him. Again, the inappropriate fear is redirected to an appropriate fear. Fear God, not man. Fear what God can do to you, not what man can do to you. What can man do to you? What can man do to you? Some of us are so afraid to confront those who are in our families and those who are our friends of sin. What can they do to you? Unfriend you? No longer like your stuff. Not, they don't call you now anyways. Not come to your family fellowships. Aren't you awkward with them anyways? Isn't it always uh, st- stepping on eggshells around them anyways? What do you fear? What is there to fear? The Lord encourages John not to fear. Not of what he sees in the holiness of Christ, but the tribulation that is to come. Uh, tribulation that he was in and the tribulation that is to come. Therefore he's saying to the church, don't fear the tribulation that you are in and the tribulation that is to come. Therefore he's saying to you, uh, that energy drink is starting to kick in. Yeah. Don't fear tribulation you may be in now or that which may come. Fear Christ. Fear Christ. But then there's another part of the fear, not not to fear, that is true. Some may be thinking, is there no place for the tender, loving kindness of Christ? When was there not tenderness offered to Adam? The answer is yes. To Abraham, yes. Israel, yes. Isaiah, Peter, John, you and I, yes. And our fear of Christ does not negate his tender a loving invitation into his presence. Yes, fear him. But for those who fear him in that appropriate way, he extends his arm of power to give mercy. To those who fear him in the appropriate manner, he extends his arm of grace, his arm of loving kindness, and welcomes you now as a fisher of men. He places his right holy hand upon the blind, doesn't he? Upon the unclean leper and their skin. Christ places his hand upon the disciple whom he loved. And he places his hand upon all of you who have repented of your sin in fear. And says to you, in that personal, merciful, Loving, gracious way. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. And there is a sweet marriage between sinners fearing the holiness of God and the Savior's tender assurance of grace. There's a marriage between the two. They are not opposite of one another. Uh, They are. Married to one another. They are are eternally joined to one another. The sinner's fear. And the Savior's grace. They go together. In God's work of regeneration. This is the experience of the believer, isn't it? We, We came in fear. We came in unworthiness. We were confronted with our sin. Convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit. And rather than run from God. Which we wanted to do. Which some of us tried to do. He mercifully draws us in. And just like a husband who invites his, his, his new bride to the dance floor. To dance with him. To, to have fellowship and intimacy with them. So Christ invites you and I to come and embrace him. As our, as his adopted children, as the lover of our soul, as the one who never begun to begin to love us, he draws us in by his grace. He who appropriately feared John is commanded to fear no more. And isn't that good news? While our heart will always be reverent toward Christ, you should. Christ's heart posture toward us is do not fear. Come near. See, he says, where I have been pierced, I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. Like Christian from the pilgrims progress, we carried great burdens on our backs with no ability to remove them on our own. Not until the king of the celestial kingdom came and removed the burdens from our backs. He did this. And now we can be free from fear, free from doubt. And isn't that the good news of the gospel? Do not be afraid. The sun sets you free. You are free indeed. Do not veer to the right or veer to the left. Stay on the royal road for you are royalty. When temptation comes and you are in this world, when trouble comes, you have a reason to remain. And what is that reason? How can you and I resist the temptation to fear and to doubt when tribulation comes from those who are opposing the kingdom? Thirdly and finally, because Christ is the living one. Christ is the living one. Notice that the, the order here, it, it, is, it is important. He says, I am the first and the last. He identifies himself with the ancient of days, the father. Listen to what he says. The living one. And then he says this. And I was dead. And behold I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys. Of death and Hades. How can you. Who have placed your faith in Christ. Royalty in his kingdom. How can you resist temptation. In this temporal world. Christ gives you the answer. He is the first and the last. He is the living one equal with the Father. He is the one who is the Alpha and Omega with the Father. Why can we, who are members of Christ's kingdom, daily, because isn't that our struggle, not not just one day, but it's, it's every day. The daily turning away from fear of shame, of death, It is because there was never a time when Christ, who was equal with the Father and the Spirit, was not present to lift us up, forgive our sins, and defeat our foes. John, the seven churches of Asia Minor, the church all throughout time, you and I here today, are being touched by the mighty and holy right hand of our Savior. And we are being commanded. Do not fear. There will be nothing that will befall us. That is contrary to the will of God. Let me say this even. Even those things that you and I fear the most. Let's. Let's be specific about our fears. Someone were to ask you right now. What do you dread the most? What immediately comes to your mind? Betrayal? Abandonment? A broken heart? Disabled bodies? Maybe even death? Know this. All of these things that we fear that may or may not come our way Are sovereignly ordered by God. All of these. Even the things we fear the most. He surely wouldn't allow those to happen to me. Would he? Do you think that it was not one of John's greatest fears. To be separated from the church. Had he not seen it happen to all of the other disciples. Who had all been killed. All been killed. All been cut off. Do you think it was not a lingering fear in in maybe the back or the front of John's mind? I know that I'm next at any moment. And the thing that he feared the most happened to him. And what is the encouragement that he receives when the thing that he feared the most happens? Christ comes and says, do not be afraid. It's not meaningless, John. It's not purposeless, John. This has been given so that your faith in Christ might be strengthened, so that you might persevere, so that you might be drawn even closer to Him who bids you do not fear. Isn't that where you need to be most? When you are afraid, when the things that, that, that you are most afraid of happen, where do you most want to be? You want to be in a place of comfort, of security, of shelter. Someone tell me it's going to be okay. And here is the one who holds all of eternity in his hands saying what an encouragement is meant for John there the church is then in the church today he is the living one notice he does not say first I was dead before he says I was dead he says I'm the living one I'm the living one I was dead no I'm the living one Because everything that follows is upheld by the fact that he's the living one. He's the living one. He's uh, the the one living unto ages of ages, G.K. Bill says. He's the eternal one. He's the mighty God. Therefore, he has the power of death, which will come next, and life, which will come after that, in his hands. Because he's the living one. He has the power, as he says, to lay down his life. And he has the power to take it up again. Because he is the living one. He is the life. He has life in his hands. Death and life are in his hands. He's going to go on to say that, isn't he? He is calling the church to discern. That the death and resurrection of Christ was an integral part of the working out of the divine purposes in history. God's working in establishing that He Himself is guiding all of history. It was no accident that He died. He's the living one. It was the sovereign will of the Father to send the Son filled with the Spirit without measure to suffer unto glory. It wasn't accidental. It was the will of the Father to crush Him. Then it follows that we should not fear our tribulation. If what Christ experienced was the will of the father, what we experience is the will of the father. The providences that we, experiences, that we experience, they are all a working out of the divine purposes of God. All that John, the church past, present and future experience is the design of the living one. The perfect design. Uh, the accident, the disease... The, the betrayal? The perfect design of God? The perfect design of God. Aren't all of these things what Christ experienced? And was it not the perfect design of God that he should suffer unto glory? We will enter the kingdom. What does the scripture say? Through much tribulation, He's the living one. He was dead. And behold, he is alive forevermore, and he has the keys of death and Hades. Yes, he was dead. The living one has come. He has offered himself as a sacrifice of sin. We shall see later in Revelation that he is described as the lamb who was slain. He was dead. It was a substitutionary death, a death in our place. In this, the Son of Man is declaring that He shows that He has conquered our fear of condemnation. You don't need to fear your death because Christ has died in your place. He need not, uh, John need not fall like a dead man for his sins because Christ has already died the sin that we deserved. So get up, He says. Get up. You don't need to die because of your sins. I've already died for them, He says. Get up. Not even if all of the creatures who ever lived offered themselves to atone for sin, they would all fall short of the treason that we've committed against God. Luther said, one drop of Christ's blood is worth more than heaven and earth. One drop. All of the blood of all of our, all of humans who ever lived is not enough to atone, but one drop of the blood of Christ is enough to atone for our sins. Death could not hold him, though. God raised him from the dead, Acts 2.24, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was, it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. Why? Because he's the living one. He's the one who holds Death doesn't hold him. He holds death. And he holds life in his hands. Not only did Christ die to free us from our fear of condemnation, but he rose. I was, I was dead, but behold, I am alive. Why it overcomes our fear of the future. Some know that Christ has died for our justification, and, and as Pastor Isaiah said earlier, and we will always be depending upon the fact that we have been justified in this life and in the life to come. But sometimes we live in fear, don't we? I'm not sure if the Spirit will complete his work. Of sanctification in me. You don't need to fear. You don't need to fear. What assurance do you have? You can fix that ringing if you want, brother. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. That's what, what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But he does say, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. And Romans 8. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Christ has been raised. Therefore, you're no longer in your sin. So then what power do you walk in? The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. He enables you, the Spirit, to continue in your faith, to turn away from sin, to offer your life as a sacrifice of worship to God. What assurance do you have that you will endure to the end? Ready for it? The resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's your assurance. We preach Christ And Him crucified. And Christ raised. You need not fear your future, dear ones. Because Christ has been raised. And Christ has promised that He will not lose one. He is presently interceding for His people. And He has promised that He will return for His people. We have a special reason. Not only to rely on the resurrection of Christ, but to look forward to our own resurrection. You will be raised one day. When He appears, we shall be like Him. Philip Hughes says, The expectation of every Christian believer is that he will see God when His own glorification becomes a reality, which will be the completion of His sanctification. You will be glorified. You will be raised with Christ. Christ, in closing, has the keys of death and Hades. You remember from Pastor Isaiah's sermon that Hades does not refer to hell alone. But it refers to the realm of the dead. Both a paradise, heaven, and the place of judgment, hell. The Lord says he's ruling over both. He rules over the realm of the dead. He determines those who enter glory and those who enter hell. And if you are in Christ, have no fear. Because the one who owns the keys of the kingdom has given you access into his presence. Do you see how Christ frees us from all of our fears? That it is a sin then to fear. That that he's removed our legal curse that required death. That he has the, the power of death. And the afterlife, it's all in His hands. Therefore, He commands, not suggest, but commands, do not be afraid. And it is because of that, and this foundation, that John commissions, or Jesus commissions John to write. Things that are done, things that are being done, and things that will be done. Brothers and sisters, royal ones, I I hope you get used to hearing that. Heed the the command of our victorious Christ, the living one. Heed the command, for he is very God of very God. Do not be afraid. He was dead, but behold, he is alive. Look to him when you are tempted to fear. Look to Him when you are tempted to despair. Look to Christ and do not be afraid. Let's pray.